she had a sort of a V-shaped haircut, V-shaped along the nape of her neck. When things were quiet, you could hear the conversation of the people in the bar, and you could hear clearly what they were saying, and you would know if they were discussing things which they thought were confidential and thought no one could hear. She just didn't match the description of the woman who did the shooting. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. Today we're going back exactly 21 years to the third week of January of the year 2001. And on that Thursday night in the country town of Currumburra in South Gippsland in Victoria, a local publican called Mike Lowry met his doom. Now, he didn't die that night. He died six months later. But that night at about 11.30 or a little bit later, just in the last half hour of the day before midnight, Mike Lowry, country publican, political candidate, general small town big deal, is shot behind one ear in the skull behind his ear with a very small calibre firearm. And at the time, police said it was, you know, a small handgun of some sort. But I believe that, in fact, they believed that it was a pen gun, that it was more or less a homemade pen gun with just a light little barrel and just set up so that you could shoot one twenty-two round down the barrel. These are not a highly effective weapon. In this case, the bullet penetrated Mike Lowry's skull, but it didn't kill him outright, which at point-blank range, nearly any firearm would kill you at point-blank range. This one didn't. Mike Lowry was, within a matter of hours, transferred to the Alfred Hospital, I think it was, in Melbourne. And there he lingered between life and death, more or less in a coma, for six months. And he did not die until the following July. He was shot on the night of January 18, and he died six months later in July. And it was only then that this case became a murder case. Now, when it first happened, it had the appearances of some sort of robbery gone wrong. You know, it's a a big pub in Currumburra. It's the pub with the gaming room. It's got 20 poker machines. They've got a fair few drinkers there. The pub back in those days would have handled quite a bit of cash. And It's the sort of scenario where the publican upstairs, more or less after hours, although there were still drinkers in the bar below, more or less after hours in that hour before he'd go to bed, it might have been vulnerable to a robbery attempt. And so at this time of a Thursday night, just before midnight, it seems logical to think that this incident would be, in fact, a robbery attempt because you'd expect there to be some sort of cash available, or at least an armed robber might think that. And initially, the police investigated it as a robbery. And indeed, what used to be called the armed robbery squad, I think by 2000, it was called the armed defenders or something. They sent a detective or detectives up to Currumburra in South Gippsland to investigate what went on. And they soon decided that it wasn't probably an armed robbery because there was no sign of anything taken. No money was taken and there was no sign of any attempt to get money. And then the police started to look at 
who might have wanted to hurt Mike Lowry? Which enemies would he have? And Mike Lowry was, well, clearly he was a country publican, but he was a bit more than that. He was a, a fairly sort of good-looking bloke. He had a head full of steel grey hair and a moustache. He looked slightly like a soap opera version of a glamorous dentist or doctor or small town hero of some sort, and maybe the, you know, the handsome sheriff type. He was 51, I think, years old. I suspect he'd been married before. He was, by this stage, married to a Thai national, a woman called Nunta. And Nunta and he had been married for about four years. He'd been running the pub for about 11 years. I think he took it over in 1989. And Nunta had a six or seven-year-old son that they called Eddie. His real name was a long Thai name, but he was known as Eddie. And they also had a little boy between them. I think his name was Hayden, a little three-year-old. And this little family lived in the rooms above the bar and the gaming room because it was one of those old two-story pubs that had a lot of rooms upstairs because back in the old days, pubs, you know, had accommodation and therefore there were a lot of rooms upstairs. And it was in this labyrinth of rooms that this shooting happened. And Mike Lowry, being fairly alert, realised that there was an intruder upstairs. He must have seen the woman who ultimately shot him and realised that she was up to no good. Now, whether he recognised her or just his instinct kicked in, it's hard to know, but he certainly yelled a warning to the little boy, Eddie, and said, run or get away from here or something like that. And Eddie ran. Then there was a a sort of a scuffle or a kerfuffle and a sort of a gunshot. Nunta, his wife, heard something, but instantly she thought it was the kids mucking around. And then she must have heard her husband groaning or yelling. And she ran out in time to see, she says, a woman run past and head for the fire escape, the outdoor stairs, and this woman took the fire escape downstairs and escaped. So this intruder escaped down the fire escape and into the street. Now, Mike Lowry's wife, Nunta, actually saw this woman run past, and between her description and that of the little boy, Eddie, the police were able to get some idea of what this woman looked like, or at least what she might have looked like. In fact, perhaps... It might be fair to say they got an idea of what she did not look like, which is sometimes useful. The woman that was described was rather hefty. You know, she carried a bit of weight. She was reasonably tall, probably around 175. So she was in the sort of around five foot seven, which is quite tall for a woman, certainly not short for a woman. And she was probably in her 30s or thereabouts. She was wearing, I think, dark-coloured jeans or pants, and they were above, I think, boots. They think she dropped a red Coca-Cola cap because one was found there that they think she dropped. And most interestingly, her hair was cut in a particular style. It was that style which had become fashionable in the 80s, but which clung on in some areas. And she had a sort of a V-shaped haircut, V-shaped along the nape of her neck. Her hair was cut short at the back. And this had been noticed either by Nunta or by Eddie or by both of them. Now, that was a reasonable description. It didn't really identify who it was, but it probably should have identified who it wasn't. The police went about their work 
Of course, this was not a murder inquiry for another six months, but they investigated it and they looked at some local people and we're not privy to which local people they looked at, but you'd have to imagine that they were forced to eliminate Mrs Lowry, that is Nunta, because obviously police look first at the people most closely related as something we often say in these podcasts, they're the first people to eliminate. So they'd look at the wife and say, did she do it? Probably not. Did she organise it? Well, they must have investigated that aspect and presumably they decided that she had not because by the time Mike Lowry actually died the following July, the police were looking elsewhere. And what they looked at was a local woman who might have had the motivation, if not the means, to attack and hurt or even kill Mike Lowry. And this was a woman who effectively put herself in the frame. Her name in those days, she was married, and her married name was Vicky Marie Wyhoon, an unusual name, W-Y-H-O-O-N. It's an anglicised version of a Chinese name. Her then-husband's ancestors had come to Australia in the gold rushes, and it was one of those unusual anglicised Chinese names that crop up from time to time in rural Victoria. And the Wyhoons are quite a well-known family around that part of Gippsland and elsewhere. And in fact, Vicky's husband, Len Wyhoon, is a highly respected volunteer fireman, the CFA, a good guy and uh, well thought of. But Len sadly had his hands full with Vicky because Vicky, the former Vicky Delios, was a troubled soul. She came from a big family. She probably had mental illness issues, not enough to be you know, sent away to an asylum or anything like that, but certainly she attracted attention with her behaviour, which was erratic and often hostile and could be quite aggressive. These days, they would say that she had a borderline personality disorder, which is a catch-all phrase to describe almost anybody. But Vicky was a troubled soul and a troubling soul who used to get herself into trouble. And not only she got herself into trouble and attracted trouble, she would, according to her husband and others, her friends and relatives, she would tend to embrace notoriety so that if there were offences happening around town, you know, if people were getting away with certain crimes or whatever, Vicky would tend to pass herself off as being in the know or somehow knowing about it or, you know, maybe she was involved, maybe she wasn't. And she liked the idea of that sort of notoriety and it probably was a form of attention-seeking. And whether she actually was involved in offending against the law is quite another thing, but she certainly behaved as if she did, and she used to hint or boast that she did. And it was this habit that attracted the attention of the police because they said, well, hang on, here's a woman who has these behavioural issues. She has fallen out with Mike Lowry. Now, Mike Lowry wasn't hard to fall out with. He was an opinionated, probably acid-tongued, a rather intelligent, sharp, big-noting sort of bloke. He'd stood for state parliament as an independent, which probably tells you something, that he was the sort of person that despised both major parties. He despised the major banks. He despised just about everybody. 
but uh, he thought that he should run as an independent, which he did in a state election. And in fact, he polled more votes than a couple of other independents, which is interesting. He was, you know, conservative, fairly pungent brand of politics, sort of me first, my way or the highway, fairly sort of right-wing, intolerant sort of stuff. But, you know, he wasn't a member of the Nazi party. He was okay. And he was intending to make a tilt for federal parliament. He, at the time of his shooting, he was intending to run for the seat of Gippsland against the sitting member, Peter McGoran. And this was interesting because Mike Lowry would write letters to the newspapers. Many of them were published by our paper, The Herald Sun. And those letters were published because they were very short, sharp and well-written. He could certainly write a letter highly effectively. He could turn a phrase or turn a line. He was very good at it or someone close to him was very good at it. Perhaps he had advisors who were helping him. I'm not sure about that. But certainly he was no fool and his advisors were no fools. And he was someone who you'd have to say was, you know, a big frog in a little puddle in Currumburra. And as such, it's inevitable that he would rub some people up the wrong way. Even his friends and supporters said that Mike was quite capable of rubbing people up the wrong way. And one of the people that he'd rubbed up the wrong way was poor old Vicky Wyhoon, who wasn't old. She was, I think, 31 at the time this happened. But Vicky Wyhoon, because of her erratic behaviour, she'd been barred from the pub, as often happens in country towns, because she used to quarrel with people and carry on. And in fact, she had developed quite a hatred of Mike Lowry for barring her. And at some point in the past, he'd felt that he had to take out an intervention order to stop her approaching him or approaching the pub. And she had, in fact, attacked him. She'd hit him with a with something, you know, with a piece of wood or whatever. She'd, in fact, struck him, not in a way that would kill him, but it was a violent thing to do and annoyed him enough that he took out this intervention violence order, which made Vicky probably even more savage about him. And so Vicky, through her own actions and her own words, actually put herself in the frame as a suspect for this shooting. And pretty well as soon as Mike Lowry actually died and it became a murder investigation, the homicide squad came to town and looked around and they eventually decided that in the absence of any other hard evidence against anyone. They couldn't find any forensic evidence to link anyone to the shooting. They plumped for Vicky because she was the best circumstantial case. There was no forensic evidence against Vicky either, but the circumstantial case against her, at least it existed. She hated him and she had attacked him before and she went around town sort of bad-mouthing him and, you know, saying, good job, he got hurt, whatever. And we'll be back after this. A troubled young woman her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. So they arrested Vicky and she was committed. She was sent to Murray Magistrates Court in April 2002. 
So this is a little more than two years after the shooting. And there she spent three days in handcuffs in court. She was presented in handcuffs by the police on the basis that they said she's erratic and dangerous, which might be true. But there was no doubt that the magistrate in those circumstances was, A, going to commit her for trial, which is what happened. She was committed for trial for murder the following July 2002. And in the meantime, the magistrate agreed with the prosecutor that she should be remanded in custody. So Vicky, 33-year-old by this, 33-year-old mother of three, is sent to jail for several months while the system mulls over whether to actually try her for murder or not. And in the end, common sense prevailed and someone at the prosecution department said, well, she mightn't have liked Mike Lowry and she might have actually hit him, but there is absolutely no smoking gun evidence, no forensic evidence whatsoever to link her to this shooting. And so the prosecutors quietly filed uh, nolla prosequi. In criminal speak, it was nollied. A nolly means that it's not proceeded with. The prosecution not proceeded with at the discretion of the prosecutor. Now, this is not the same as being acquitted. You haven't actually been tried. You haven't been found not guilty by a jury. It's just that the prosecutor at this point in time has not proceeded. And usually it's it rests there. However, it always remains open that if further evidence was gathered, that she could be recharged and go before a court again, I, I do believe. What happened was Vicky is released from jail. She goes back to South Gippsland, to Currumburra. Her marriage, already under strain, of course, with all this, falls apart. She moves over the hill to Langatha, another country town in South Gippsland, and she reverts to her maiden name, as we used to say in the old days, of Delios. So she became Vicky Delios. She was one of a, a pretty big family, several sisters, a fairly close family, I think. And I think probably she had a fair bit to do with bringing her three kids up. Her kids, who were reasonably young when she was charged, had a pretty tough time because although a lot of locals thought that Vicky was a pest, they, they didn't really think she'd probably done the murder. She had been accused of it. That was the gossip. It was a pretty big scandal. And a lot of parents of other kids at school and so forth were fairly wary of her kids mixing with their kids. So her children, through no fault of their own, had a fairly tough time. So her husband, Len, the volunteer fireman and all-round, you know, good country bloke, he goes on to marry another lady and they have small children and so on and so forth. Vicky lives in Langatha in 2013. Finally, the law sort of catches up with the case and finally there is an inquest called on the death of Mike Lowry and a coroner in Melbourne, very wisely, I think, listens to all the evidence and decides that there is no strong evidence against Vicky Wyhoon and the coroner makes an open finding, which means someone shot Mike Lowry and that shot caused him to die, but there was no way of knowing accurately who pulled the trigger. And so it's, it's an open finding, which is a, a very good thing for a coroner to do because it doesn't close off the possibilities of investigating absolutely anyone. 
At that point, a local newspaper reporter from the Currumburra or South Gippsland paper went to visit Vicky and talk to her and she seemed a fairly sad and lonely figure, it seems to me, certainly alienated and probably bitter about the way she'd been treated. The coroner's finding in 2013 stirred up interest in this case again, a good 10 or 11 years after its previous outing, and a local reporter for the local South Gippsland paper went over to Leon Gather and spoke to Vicky, and she said a few things, but she made the point that she'd had to live with the stigma of being accused of murder, which would be true, and that she didn't think that was fair. And she pointed out, I think correctly, that in the end there was no way she could be convicted of this because she just didn't match the description of the woman who did the shooting. And that is the woman seen upstairs at the time that Mike Lowry was shot and that woman was reasonably hefty, reasonably tall and had her hair cut in a particular way with a sort of a V-shape at the nape of her neck. None of those things described Vicky the way she'd been when she was 31. She was neither tall nor particularly heavy, and she did not have her hair cut in that way. And it was interesting too that Mike Lowry's wife, Nunta, said she did not recognise the woman who was upstairs. And you might think that Nunta would have recognised Vicky because Vicky was the one who had struck her husband in the past and had caused a lot of trouble. And in fact, they'd had the IVO taken out against her. So you'd think she would know Vicky very well. And she said she hadn't recognised this woman. So that's 2013. Life goes on, the case goes quiet. And then in 2019, Vicky, by now 50, takes her own life, or at least she died suddenly. And the inference is that she somehow ended her life in some manner, much to the sadness of her many relatives and it was more or less the end of a sad story apart from this. In recent times a young woman whose mother has lived at Currumburra for many years has come out of the woodwork. She lives interstate now. She's alienated from her mother and other members of her family and she has told me and I believe she's told some local reporters in South Gippsland, and I think she's also approached certain police about this, but she certainly told me this in recent weeks, that she was told by very good sources close to her mother, and her mother is an habitual criminal of some sort, and her mother, she says, has dealt in drugs for many, many years. Her mother is well known to various outlaw motorcycle gangs, particularly Hells Angels, her mother is well known to Kath Pettengill, the crime matriarch, so-called, who lives at Venus Bay, and so on and so forth. And she says that she's been told a version of events which actually fits the facts. She's been told by a very close relative that a woman that we will call the alleged killer, that this woman, the alleged killer, looks like the description. She's got 
darkish hair, used to be cut in the V, and uh, she was a certain height and a certain weight. And at that time, she matched the description. The alleged killer also had a grudge or a grievance against Mike Lowry. But there was more to the story. Our source says that the alleged killer did the shooting and she escaped with the help of another woman who we will call the alleged accomplice. Her real name is obviously not that, but her alleged accomplice drove the car to help the shooter escape, says our source. And you'd wonder why both women were involved. Well, the source says, although they had a grudge against Mike Lowry, they were also manipulated by our source's mother. And she says that there's a reason for this, a very strong reason, and that is that a local woman had had some sort of relationship or affair with Mike Lowry, and she realised because of her meetings with him upstairs in a room above the bar, she realised that if you were in particular rooms above the bar late at night or when things were quiet, you could hear the conversation of the people in the bar and you could hear clearly what they were saying and you would know if they were discussing things which they thought were confidential and thought no one could hear. And the story goes that Mike Lowry could overhear conversations in the bar below and when he overheard conversations between some of the local rap bags about dealing in drugs and buying drugs and selling drugs and all the rest of that sort of stuff or stolen goods, whatever it might be, that he would hear enough to gain information and he would go off to his friends, the local police, with whom he was quite friendly, and inform on those drinkers who'd been talking out of school in his pub. And word of this filtered back to some very unsavoury people in the drug dealing side of Currumburra because this shady, sleazy woman who was seeing Mike Lowry on the side reported back that he could hear these conversations. And so that joined the circle, allegedly, and that gave a very powerful motive for certain people in Currumburra to encourage the alleged killer and the alleged accomplice to carry out this attempted murder, which ended up a real murder. The thing about the shooting was that it probably was done with something like a a pen pistol because I'm told on impeccable authority that the police actually went to the Wai Hoon's house specifically with a warrant looking for a pen pistol. And that would tally with the sort of people that were dealing in drugs, probably females dealing in drugs around country districts would have found it fairly easy to get a pen pistol and hide it around their body somewhere or, you know, in their clothing or in their handbags where it wouldn't be as obvious as a real gun but would be useful if somebody attempted to hold them up or whatever. And so it makes sense that this would happen. It also makes sense that it wouldn't actually kill somebody necessarily, which is what happened. It also makes sense that the bullet actually hurt Mike Lowry sufficiently, injured his brain sufficiently that he lost consciousness and was unable to speak for six months and basically was unable to communicate anything to anybody 
about the crime or anything else. And we'll be back after this to finish our story. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. And so the truth about who killed Mike Lowry probably died with Mike Lowry. And if not with him, then with Vicky Wyhoon, later known as Vicky Delios. And so, listeners, it remains to be seen whether this cold case, which remains open, will ever be solved. Don't hold your breath. Thanks for listening. Life and Crimes is a Sunday Herald Sun production for True Crime Australia. Our producer is John Burton. If you like the show, leave a five-star rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to know more about these stories, links are in the description of this episode.